Family Secrets is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. You may have noticed that many of the guests on Family Secrets are writers, those who have given form and voice to their secrets. That's why I'm so thrilled to be sponsored by Audible. Family Secrets listeners can get one audiobook of their choosing, including bestsellers and new releases and access to Audible's all-new Plus catalog, free with a 30-day trial. Visit audible.com slash danny or text danny to 500-500 to get started. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Icarus, sons, sons are roped to fathers. Fathers, well, are we sure they're tied to sons? Sons need fathers. Fathers? Sons take years from fathers. Honest fathers know this. Picture an hourglass, two globes, one filled, the other empty. Now in your mind, turn it over, the top of the globe, the father grains of sand, his years. The bottom of the globe, that's the sun. See the years slipping away from the father, filling up the sun. Fathers flow into sons. Think of Icarus. A father and son exist on an island. At some point, the father longs to escape. And the son, he doesn't want to be left behind, abandoned. And fathers... They always have plans, but sons should remember that the plans of their fathers often have holes. A father is no shield for a son. That's Michael Haney reading a passage from his beautiful book, After Visiting Friends, A Son's Story. What happens when a boy loses his father at a tender age, an age so young that he hardly remembers him? And that boy grows up to become a journalist, digging for answers to questions he's always had about the nature of his father's death. Questions that have formed him. Questions that beg for answers. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. I feel like I remember nothing before April 24th, 1970, and that was the morning shortly after I turned six years old that I learned my father was dead. And uh, up until then, I think, I mean, as they say, I don't remember much, but I don't have reason to remember anything bad. It was a pretty pleasant childhood, I think. I was, I just turned six. I, have a, I had an older brother, Chris, who was eight. My mother was 33 at the time. My father was 35, and we were living in a suburb of Chicago, right on the border of Chicago, out near the airport, O'Hare. And um, it was, uh, I think, probably pleasant by all accounts and um, but you know it was that formative moment which I think has defined my life when that was my father's death when you say that you have no memories before that moment do you really mean no memories like I would say 
in the excavation, looking back over my life, I would see when I was when I was working on searching for this story, I would remember moments where I'd be sort of flipping through a photo album from, you know, that my mother had kept, and I could remember, oh, that was Christmas when I was four, or that. I think I remember taking that trip, but you know, I think also developmentally from what I've known in my time spending a lot of time on the couch is children often don't remember much until age five, really. There's a reason they sort of develop and sort of that's when kindergarten begins and that's when one sort of memory sort of locks in. So um, I certainly don't mean to be dramatic and say I don't remember much, but I really, it was as though that was when, you know, the curtain went up on my life. So tell me about that moment, what you remember. My brother and I shared a small bedroom in a small house, sort of row house, townhouse. And my father was a newspaper editor. He worked what was called the lobster shift, which meant you worked from 6 p.m. until 3 a.m., closing the morning edition. And uh, my brother and I shared this room, and I was in kindergarten, and my brother was in second grade. So it was very common that we would wake up and come downstairs for breakfast and my father would be there already having just come home and he would wait up for us, have breakfast and then usually sort of go to sleep. But it was a beautiful sunny morning. I remember it because the sun was kind of searing the edges of the shade that was drawn in our bedroom and our mother came in to wake us up and I always remember she was just very happy and as she was waking us up we slept in these twin beds side by side the doorbell rang, which was unusual. My mother went to the shade in, in our bedroom, and she raised the shade. And she, I remember standing on the, my brother's bed with him, with my mother, and looking down and seeing my grandparents, my mother's parents, and my father's brother on the back porch. And um, the next thing I remember is my mother had gone downstairs, and my brother and I standing on the top of the staircase, and we could hear her crying. And my brother and I went downstairs, stood on the edge of the kitchen, and I remember my uncle turning to my mother who was sitting on the chair and saying, the boys are here. And at that point, she pulled us together and said, your father's dead. And that was the morning. Describe your father for me. Describe him as you remember him in, you know, in the brief time that you had with him. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question. I have two memories. One is, I remember he loved to wrestle with my brother and me. And by that, I mean, I can remember after dinner on the living room floor, just doing what a father does, is letting two boys sort of crawl all over him and, you know, sort of test your strength against him. And I also remember, you know, after dinner, he would be at the table and He'd usually, often, I have a memory of him holding up a palm for each of us, my brother and myself, sitting in his kitchen chair, and one palm in front of my brother, one palm in front of me, and each of us making little fists and sort of punching at his open palm and him sort of exaggerated, like, oh, it's so strong, you guys are so strong. I also remember him teaching me to ride a two-wheel bike so I remember those things, small moments like that, vivid, you know, concrete. But I don't remember any words. 
And how about your mother from that time? I mean, with your mother, you have a before and you have an after. Yeah. With your father, you only have a before. Two memories I'd say I have are, I was, I was also a, a boy who seems to have um, gotten into a number of scrapes. By that, I mean, I once knocked two teeth out and they had to take me to a hospital for stitches. I once fell and sort of uh, cut my head open. And it seems like my, my memories of my mother were always kind of scooping me up and taking me to the hospital for stitches. And, um, but I, again, I don't really, I don't remember words. I couldn't tell you anything that they ever really said to me until that morning. And you do remember the words from that morning. But it's, it's interesting, too, that you brought up you remember the weather because I have this theory about trauma and the weather and, oh, sure. and memory. And there's just something about, or even, I mean, for me, like what I was wearing in moments like that. Or like everything becomes very, very vivid yeah. in, a, in a kind of sensory way and just becomes sort of imprinted. You're exactly right. And, and, and forever, I've not liked the spring and which is, I'm married now, but when I used to date, and I'll be like, oh my God, spring, it's so fun. Let's, and I, was, I could never pinpoint why I had, would sink into some kind of depression worse than usual at springtime. And I'm, I'm, I think it's some deep vibration that it's just there. You then, you and your brother and your mother, go on with your lives, and she's now a single mom. And you and your brother are growing up without a dad. Mm -hmm. What did you, as you were growing up, understand about your father's death? We were told that he had been working late, as he always does, and that he, when he had left the office of the newspaper, was walking to his car and had a heart attack and died on the street and some police found him. And that's what happened to him. And in those years of your childhood and being a teenager, how did that sit with you? Did you question that story at all? All the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this is what, if you've had trauma, you will understand it. If, and if you haven't, maybe you will too. But seven, eight, nine years old, I'd hear, and I just, you know, you tell me again, Mom, what happened? Right, And I think this is even informed by the basic watching TV shows when you're a kid and you see how the police work. Like, And beginning with, I'd say, but I don't understand, why did Uncle Dick come and tell us? Why didn't the police come and tell us? Because that's what happens in the TV shows. My mom would say, well, I don't know, that's just the way it was. I mean, I, you know, she was not, I think, actively deceiving me. It's just like, well, that's just, she didn't think either. But it was, it just... I think part of it was, I would hear, like, well, he died on the street, and I would just, being, like I say, eight, nine, ten years old, I would just lay in bed at night and picture him dead on a street in Chicago and the police finding him, and then, okay, so then, why did they call Uncle Dick? Why wouldn't they call the house? And beginning at that age, it just didn't square with me. I think about it all the time, and yet my house was a house of enormous silence, and, um, so I never really asked my mother that much. Every so often I'd find the courage to ask her, why do you think, or why, what about this? But I lived in such, through the mind of a child I see now who'd 
suffered trauma, I lived with great fear that if I upset her, I could lose her too, or I would believe I was. So I kept a lot of these questions to myself, or, and I would just work them over in my own mind, even though I was desperate to ask her or someone what they might know, but I never did. We'll be right back. Family Secrets is sponsored by Audible. As communities around the world confront new challenges, including social distancing and school closures, many of us are looking for new ways to relax and feel connected to the world, to ourselves, to one another. Whether that means getting lost in a historical story, a memoir, a work of provocative nonfiction, or a juicy celebrity biography, I know that stories help. Stories pierce our solitude and make us feel less alone. Audiobooks are such an intimate form. It's why I love them. We can just close our eyes, take a break from Zoom, and get swept away. I listen to Audible originals, audiobooks, guided wellness programs, even comedy, as I'm walking my dog or folding my laundry, or behind the wheel of my car. Thousands of titles right at our fingertips. That's such a gift. At any time, but particularly during these times. Start your 30-day trial with Audible and get one audiobook plus access to the all-new Plus Catalog for free by visiting audible.com slash Danny or by texting Danny to 500-500. In that enormous silence that so often surrounds trauma, a child's mind plays tricks. I think this happens to all of us who have experienced a cleaving loss, but particularly a young child who has no tools no way to deal. And so, Michael is ever vigilant. His magical thinking tells him that loss begets loss. Tragedy, tragedy. He can control the world and keep his mother, his brother, and himself safe if he stays watchful but silent. You grow up and become a journalist. Mm -hmm. In a way, even the questions, the whys, that you were asking as a child were the questions of someone who might grow up and become a journalist, you know, need to drill down, need to know, need to get to the bottom of the story. Right. I know there's a part of me that made the decision to live out his life. Because what you have to understand is my father kept these meticulous scrapbooks from the time he was probably in kindergarten. And... They go from kindergarten through college, through grad school. And um, they were really all I had of him. And they were kept in the bottom of this bookcase. And I discovered them when I was a boy. And I would always wait until my mother was out of the house. And then I would go to them. And to me, they were this almost like, I hope I'm using this right way, but like this Talmudic kind of document to, to, to all these evidence to piece together a life. I would see this boy growing up, everything from report cards to Mother's Day cards he made for his mother when he was eight to seeing him writing stories for the high school newspaper and reading them. And I thought, and so when you ask earlier about what was his voice, I don't, I never heard his voice, but I could see this voice being made manifest and watching it grow. In grammar school, I had teachers who recognized my ability to write. So 
you know, as I got older, and well, I know how to write. And so I think it's sort of my sense of self was meeting this, what I thought was an unrealized self of his life. And I thought, well, maybe I can remember thinking, I'm going to fulfill his unfulfilled life. And I'm going to make myself known as the son of Bob Haney. So there's a large part of that that I see. But I also wonder, maybe I was supposed to do something else. Well, we're shaped by our experiences. I mean, right. that's, and we're shaped by our losses. And, you know, I, I often say, you know, you change one thing, then everything changes. Right. It's so unusual that he kept these scrapbooks for a man, first of all. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me as something much more common that girls would do right. than boys, or also that parents would do for their children, as opposed to actually documenting his life, you know, piecing that together. Right. I mean, it's it's sentimental to say as if he almost knew that, you know, that he was leaving something behind so that you could understand or track him through his own life up until that point. What did they look like? What did the what did the scrapbooks look like? They're, you know, depression era, sort of big portfolios with string holding them together and the pages are that thick, rough, almost like now it's all faded, rough paper and pot of glue down and, and you know, you can see them being bought at the five and dime store and um, out in Nebraska where he grew up. And, and you know, I, I wonder what he was thinking, this, this desire to document his life, you know, and to preserve his life. One thing that's really interesting is there are some letters that he wrote to girlfriends or a girl a girl or two that he had a crush on in high school. And don't know why he has had them, but I remember reading them and, and I remember they were filled with such yearning and also such vulnerability and even self-doubt and I'm just thinking now when you ask again about voice, do I remember his voice? No, but I remember that voice, and that voice was... I remember imitating it. I remember imitating it with when I started to be 15, 16, and he was very vulnerable and kind and very, like me, he was oversensitive. And, you know, as someone told me when I was reporting the story, is he was so hard on himself and wait a minute, that's me, you know? And again, is it, did I have that in me or did I see his voice and start to then invalidate it? I don't know, but he was he was a very vulnerable boy, teenager, and yet very smart, but I think very hard on himself. Interesting, because you, you spent your life, most of your life, not knowing him, and yet what you're describing is something that many people never know about their parents. Mm-hmm. So, how old were you when you found the obituaries of your father? I was 17, 18. I was in high school, and I had to write a term paper. And I was doing research on microfilm. And I just had the thought that, you know, he was a journalist, and he was prominent. I wonder what the newspapers wrote about him, what the obituaries said. There were four newspapers that wrote up the obituary about him. Two had a, just a story that he, you know, had died, and there was. But then, 
two of them had this detail in them and said he had died after visiting friends on the 3900 block of North Pine Grove in Chicago. And I can remember sitting there reading, well, that's weird. Number one, how come if I, he has friends up near there and he was visiting them that none of these friends ever said to me, gee, Mike, I saw your dad just before he died. I want you to know he said this about you or like there was never any friends who raised their hand for that night. Number two, that we knew no one, as far as I knew, who lived in that area of Chicago. And number three, that area of Chicago was nowhere even remotely on the way home that he would have been taking. But this shiver went down my spine that I'd found something forbidden that I probably should not be reading. And though I wanted to ask my mother and show her what I had just found, I made copies of the microfilm and I took them home and I just hid them in a box under my bed. And that was when I was 17, 18, and kind of moved on. But still, there was that knock on the door all the time when you're sitting there thinking, and that knock saying, you really should be looking at me. Yeah, I mean, it's for forbidden and also confirming of something. Yeah, and confirming 10, 12 years of suspicion. So then you go off to college and you start living your life. And at what point does that knocking get louder? The knocking gets louder just about the time I was 33, 34, starting to crest towards the age my father was when he died. And I had, again, it might not sound believable to some people, but if you've had trauma, you would understand. From the time I was seven, eight, nine, I really was confirmed in my belief that I would not outlive him and that it was even a reason why I did not want to get married. And if I did get married, I was not going to have children because I did not want to die on them and what was the point. So really, as I um, started to crest towards the age he died, which was um, 35, I sort of really went into a... Um, an emotional crisis and I was seeing a doctor you know intensive kind of um, analysis and when I sort of started seeing him he said well you're basically having a functioning breakdown I had, was able to go on with things Monday through Friday but you know and at nights and then at home I'd sort of really that, that year or so leading up to it was really um, very difficult and I think what made me think, I just have to find this answer. And that's what really drove me toward it. It should be said, too, that you were a very successful working writer and, and journalist during this time, that you right. were functioning in that, you know, nine-to-five-during-the-week way. Right. Which I think that really bears saying and also talking about a little bit, because I think it's true of so many people right. um, that there is a way in which you can kind of have a place in the world in which, you know, for many people it's their work lives, where outwardly everything seems perfectly fine. I would imagine that your colleagues and the people that you were working with had no idea that you were having this kind of functioning breakdown. Yeah, and I think, you know, from what we know about trauma, I mean, the people survive trauma and you have no idea whether it's something, some PTSD in combat or, you know, we've read about people who survived 
Nazi camps or, you know, people who survive horrible sexual trauma, you know, you, you, you learn to compartmentalize, right? You learn to get on with your life and you, you want you, that is all part of the, the moving forward and not letting this thing define you or destroy you. However, it's going to always keep knocking on that door unless one sits down with it and really answers to it and asks it, asks it for answers. So I think it had, as I've said, it's, I've been not confronting those suspicions and going in search of the answers that I needed to at least make a run for if I was going to be complete. I was incomplete. So Michael commences the search he's been putting off, in some ways, all his life. He begins with his mother. He tells her he wants to write about his dad and get in touch with the old circle of newspaper guys who would have known him and worked with him. It wasn't only about getting to the bottom of what had happened on that April night in 1970. He wanted to know the man he had lost. He wanted to learn more about Bob Haney's boyhood and how he'd left the small Dust Bowl town in Nebraska where he'd been raised and found the means and ambition to get himself to Chicago. Fundamentally, Michael is asking the questions that lead to the answer of how he came to be. Imagine a world of older, perhaps now retired, newspaper men. A tough breed, these men, and they were mostly men, who reported on the streets of Chicago, then drank away their cares at the local watering hole. There's a tight bond among journalists who work shoulder to shoulder at the same paper. They stick together, look out for one another. So when Michael begins to report the story, he's met with a range of reactions. Mostly, he's being stonewalled. Some of these guys are willing to meet up with him, talk with him. But when it comes to the night of his father's death, he gets nothing. And remember, Michael is a seasoned reporter himself, one of the best. He has all these skills, this background as a journalist. But he's not getting answers. This goes on for a good, solid year. But eventually, he gets a couple of breaks he never could have imagined. In the essential basic reporting of what I was doing, I was led to two women who changed my life and and changed the trajectory of my life and made my story possible. One was a woman named Jan who worked at the morgue in Chicago and another was Lynn, who worked at the hospital where my father was body was taken uh, after he died. And they were both working at two of the grimmest places you might imagine. Jan in the morgue, literally like, when I first met her, I always say like, there she was in this sort of behind this plexiglass window where she's got a, her whole job is to encounter people who are coming to claim bodies of loved ones. That was her eight-hour-a-day job. And I walked up to her and talked through a little hole. I looked down, and she's got two Bibles open side by side. And I said, the journalist in me, I said, that's interesting. Why do you have two Bibles? And she said, Old Testament, New Testament. You've got to know what was foretold and what was delivered. And she was, as I said, worked in one of the grimmest places in the world. But filled me with such life and optimism and made a profound difference in my life. And she's the one who then suggested, said, you need to go to the hospital. You need to find the records. 
Well, I went to the hospital where he was taken, and I went down to the records room, which, as I say, paper is like water. It seeks its own level, which is usually in a basement. And I found this woman, Lynn, and I told her what I needed. She looked, she didn't have it. And about a year and a half went by where I had, I didn't have any answers and I just sort of put aside the search. I got a call one day from Lynn and she said, is this Michael? I said, yeah. She said, this is Lynn. Do you remember me? I said, yes, I do. And she said, you know, I just couldn't stop thinking about you. And uh, I thought it's a terrible thing that you don't have answers. And she said, you know, I always felt bad I couldn't find those records because I knew they had to be here. And she said, so today I went to the cabinet, I pulled out the filing cabinet, pulled every drawer out, and there was your father's record. It had fallen on the bottom, and I have it. Can't make that up. These two women, Jan and Lynn, appear almost as angels in Michael's search. What's remarkable is that each of them Instead of just doing their jobs and saying, nope, sorry, no information available here, each of them keeps thinking about his story. Years go by, from the time Michael first meets them, in the morgue, in the hospital, places where people are often inured to the suffering of others simply by overexposure. But each of them keeps thinking, or in Jan's case, praying. She called me. I was at work. I was in my office. And this was, you know, four or five years into this search, and and I was working on the story. I had discovered certain truths that I was afraid to then bring to my mother. And I got a phone call one day, and I hadn't talked to Jan probably in three or four years. And she she said, I've been hearing you in my prayers, and you need help. And again, people think I'm making this up, but I'm not. And this is what life will bring to you if you put yourself in on a path sometimes. And she said, you have a choice. She said, I can, I've seen you. You've just kind of popped open the lid. You're coming out of the box. I mean, and to me, it's, it's, it was almost like I was coming out of a coffin. And she said, now what's your choice? You're going to throw that lid off or are you going to let it close on you? How she divined that and knew that at the time, but it was this, exhortation this and can't account for it but there it is right so when Lynn found the hospital records Mm -hmm. there was a name associated with your father's hospital records which was a name that you didn't know no it was no friend I'd ever heard of so the name of a woman and gave her address I quickly looked her up on Google and I had discovered that she had died about a year before. So I was personally, for my own search, crestfallen. I was, but also just wondering what was this woman's life. I found some obituaries. She had been working at a paper with my father and then left shortly thereafter and moved to San Francisco. She was young. At the, at the time, my father was 34, 5. She was in her late 20s. And then I found another person, another a person that my mother didn't know had been a colleague of my father's, a guy named Tom Moffat. I called him up one night, and he said, oh, let me call you tomorrow. Called him back, and the reason he put me off, as he told me later, is he had just had a couple beers, and he was afraid he was going to spill something. But 
I guess the night gave him a time, a chance to reflect on what he said to me. He said, I'm going to tell you something, and I'm going to tell you this because when I was a kid growing up, he said, my mother went away. And he said, I was about 14. And he said, when she went away, you know, in quotation marks, he said, I always thought she didn't love me. And what I found out later was she'd suffered a nervous breakdown, go into various facilities. And he said, but my father didn't tell me the truth. And he said, lo and behold, decades later, I had my own bouts with, you know, and who knows, again, like, again, how these echoes happen in our lives. Was it because it was in him or was it just echoing off of her? And he said, so I think you deserve to know the truth. And he said, I was the guy who was your dad's alibi, and he told me the truth of what happened that night. My father was seeing this woman. Her name is Bobby, was Bobby, and he died in bed at her apartment. And she was young. She was clearly, that's a horrible situation to be in. She called my uncle who was a newspaper editor at another paper in town. He was a very executive editor of the Chicago Today slash Chicago American. So she called him just as she was also calling the police. And he showed up with the police, from what I understand. He basically got the cops to agree, listen, this guy had two young boys at home, a young wife. Can't we just agree that he died on the street, and that can be our story. Which, my uncle was very close to pulling that off. He comes over, he knocks on the door, he gets two of the newspapers not to print that story, but two of the newspapers, whoever was writing that obituary didn't get the phone call to take that out, so that's how it slipped in. Otherwise, he would have had the perfect cover-up, and, you know, he would have protected, quote-unquote, all of us, but um, you've got to six-year-old boy saying that doesn't add up. And then when you're 35, 36, you're going in search of that. There's a moment in your conversation with Tom Moffat where uh, you're you're saying to him, you know, sort of incredulously, like, that was altering the scene of a crime. I mean, and he says to you, it wasn't a crime, it was a tragedy. Mm -hmm. I found this one of the most powerful parts of your book. The idea that, you know, when things happen is at least as important as what happens or changes, alters what happens, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know, the idea that just a minute in either direction and it would have been the simple tragedy right. if he had been having a drink in the bar before he went over to Bobby's and he had had his massive coronary then, mm-hmm. then it would have been, that would have been the story and you would never have known about Bobby. Um, he could have spent the evening with Bobby as he had done many times before and then left and started to go home. And Mm -hmm. then once again, it would have been the quote-unquote simple tragedy. Right. And yet, all that still would have been the case. Your father, your young father, was having a long affair with with a young woman that he worked with, and that would still have been the case. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that would also have been somehow woven into the sort of DNA of, you know, the fabric of of his absence 
right. but it would have been even more elusive. Yeah. Yeah, those vibrations, I call them those ripples across the years. That's why these stories resonate is because they're, whether it's yours or mine or other people that have written stories or just live these stories, it's something in your soul picks up those vibrations and says, mm, this isn't, and if you're attuned to it, there it is. But um, yeah, a minute either way, it's a different life, right? It's a different story. So now Michael knows. He has the answer to the question that's been haunting him. So now there's knowledge. But with this knowledge comes a whole new layer of complexity. So often, when we finally discover a secret, we then feel the burden of that secret. In effect, we become the secret keepers. Because now, what does Michael do about his mom? It was... A great relief, obviously, that I'd hunch or that feeling was confirmed and that I wasn't wrong for feeling all those thoughts and suspicions. But it was a horrible burden immediately. And as I said earlier, if I looked at my childhood, one thing I always lived in fear of was being either cast out or made an orphan, and by that I mean losing my mother's love, um, either through something I did to anger her, which I'd, you know, as a child, like, you're going to be cast out, you're going to lose that love, or, you know, I would lose her. And so when I come into ownership of this secret, my father's secret, I basically froze, and for a good year, I just thought, I can't write this story. I can't share it. I don't know what I'm going to do now because I couldn't bring it to her. I knew if I, I, you know, to complete the story, I need to tell her what I found and at least have her permission to share our family story and and a story that involves her and it's our tragedy. And this was where you received the call from Jan saying, I've been yeah. I've been praying, you've been in my prayers, and yeah. are you going to just close this yeah, up I, again? I can see your, I can feel your distress. I can feel that something stopped you. Worked on this book almost 10 years, and when I started it, I was a single man. By the time I, this period had come, I was with my now wife, Brooke, and I have, would have long discussions with her, and she would say, you have to tell her. I said, why? I'm going to destroy her life, and she said, all women know. They know. I said, well, what happens if, you know, she said, it's not just trust it. When I was on this search, I came to everyone and every encounter with, not with anger, but with love. And being like, whatever this person says, I'm going to learn something. And my anger about what happened is, that's past. I, but if I can navigate by love and navigate with, you know, the search for the truth and not hurting some people. That's what I always tried to do, and especially then bringing it to my mother. That's what I, I had to do. So tell me about going to pizza with your mother. <laughs> went home and, and uh, to Chicago and went to her favorite Italian place. And, you know, that's when I said, I have to tell you what I found. And, uh, and my mother's a very stoic, I keep saying silent stoic, and unemotional and you can't underestimate her strength as I've said before like she was 33 
no husband, two young children, no money, and she did it. So I told her, and um, she really didn't flinch, you know? She's not a flinching person. I was so concerned that she was going to think I was tearing him down, and instead she listened and did not argue with me. You write something really beautiful at the very end of your book, uh, which is your mother is recounting something that a friend of hers said uh, about your father. She said, she felt dad always was of two worlds. He was smart and funny and sensitive and kind, but there was a dark, melancholic side. She said, I don't think living in this world was easy for your father. My mother says, well, this world is all we have. She goes silent, and in that moment, I see her anew. I realize, here I am, a son who went looking for his father and found his mother. After I finished writing a draft of the book and sold it, you know, I went home and gave my mother a draft of the book because I wanted her to read it before I published it and flew home on a Saturday, put the manuscript on the kitchen table, My mother being my mother said, well, I'm not going to read it while you're here. And I said, well, I don't want you to read it while I'm here. So we spent the day together, flew back home to New York. Two days later, I was at work, the phone rang. Uh, It was my mother, and she said, I just finished reading the book. And then she started to cry. My heart sank. I was convinced this is the moment I'm cast out. This is the moment I've actually broken it. And I said, why are you crying? And she said, because it's the most beautiful gift you could have ever given me. I said, what do you mean? She said, you know, for 40 years I've pushed these questions down, so far down that I'd forgotten about them, but they were always there. And now I can see that you've, these are the answers I needed and I should have looked for. And I'm sorry that that I wasn't there. Some weeks after this, and this is after the manuscript, she would call me every so often with something she had just remembered or a question she had. For instance, she called me one day and she said, you know, I was doing the wash this morning and I know you're going to think this is strange, but I just had this flash of something I remembered. I said, what's that? She's like, I remember one morning doing the wash and putting Dad's shirt into the machine And I saw lipstick on his collar. And I said, well, what did you do? And she said, I pushed it under. Just put it in there and closed the lid. And I said, you did? She said, Michael, you were four or five. Chris was six or eight. Said, like, if I had contemplated that, my world would have fallen apart. I couldn't do it. I just had to go on, and I made that decision. A few weeks later, she called me up and she said, can I ask you a question? I said, what? She said, do you think if I'd been a better wife, he would still be here? This wouldn't have happened. And again, my heart just sank because I can only imagine the sadness of that and where that's coming from. But I also saw who I was as a son decades later on the other side and I could do something that I could do now which was to put my arms around her and I said I'm glad you said that because I can tell you no 
I said, Mom, that's like saying, if I'd been a better son, maybe he wouldn't have done that. I said, you know what? He made his choices, and they make me sad. We'll never know why he made those choices, but it's not a comment on who you are and I was and what we are still as a family and that we remain as a family. And I think the journey brought us closer together in a way we hadn't been. Many thanks to Michael Haney for trusting me with his story. You can find out more about his book, After Visiting Friends, A Son's Story, by following him on Twitter at Michael Haney. That's at Michael Haney. Family Secrets is an iHeartMedia production. Dylan Fagan is a supervising producer, and Julie Douglas and Beth Ann Macaluso are the executive producers. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, you can get in touch with us at listenermail at familysecretspodcast.com. You can also find me on Instagram at Danny Writer and Facebook at Family Secrets Pod and Twitter at Fam Secrets Pod. For more about my book, Inheritance, visit dannyshapiro.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Family Secrets is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. You may have noticed that many of the guests on Family Secrets are writers, those who have given form and voice to their secrets. That's why I'm so thrilled to be sponsored by Audible. Family Secrets listeners can get one audiobook of their choosing including bestsellers and new releases and access to Audible's all-new Plus catalog, free with a 30-day trial. Visit audible.com slash Danny or text Danny to 500-500 to get started.